Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you hear us and that you are capable of accomplishing all that we ask, all that we need. And Lord, we come to you in prayer as we are aware of the fact that, that many in our nation are, uh, are in danger. Lord, as we think about Hurricane Irma that is, that is affecting people now, Lord, we, our hearts break and we know that your heart breaks. Lord, we ask that you would intervene, that you would be involved, Lord, that you would protect, that you would save life. Lord, we ask that, that those who are on the ground working and, and preparing to respond to the needs of people in Florida and, 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 and surrounding areas, Lord, would you be at work? Lord, this is a reminder that our world is broken and that, it is, that sin is not simply a personal reality. It is, it is a, a physical reality that impacts all of creation. And so, Lord, would you help us to see that, that you are still at work in this world? So, Lord, we pray for those being impacted. And, and, Lord, we pray for even those who are still suffering in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Lord, there's so much need in our world. And so, would you be at work? Would you compel your church and the people in this world to respond in generosity? Would we care for those in need, for our neighbors who we don't even know? Lord, we entrust this all to you, and we ask that you would work in accordance with your will for the good of all people and the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, uh, Christ Community. It's good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel, and I'm the campus pastor here. If you know me, you know I, I have a big family. I come from a big family. And, and one thing that's true of big families is that at, at holiday meals, you have the adult table and you have the kids' table. And, and I, 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 I ate at the kids' table for many, many a year. And I remember when my cousin Ellen, she's a year older than me, she was invited up to the, to the adult table. It's, it's like being tapped on the shoulder. It's like coming up from AAA to Major League. It's like, all right, I'm going to the adult table. And I knew that my year was coming the next year. And so I was like, finally, I'll be a man. And so I was really excited. And, and so the next year comes, waiting for my invitation. Guess who still wasn't a man? I was still at the kids' table for that year and for three more years. I remained there. And so I, I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because I looked like I was eight at the age of 16. But, but we, I was kept at the kids' table for multiple years, left to talk with all of my idiot cousins who were way younger than me. And, so, and, and it was just it was kind of emasculating. I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to be a part of those significant conversations. And, and, and I share this because in some ways my experience uh, at the kids' table is analogous to, to, I think, a cultural narrative that, that we've kind of bought into, particularly in the West, and that is the idea that religion should be kept private. Now, now for many years, I mean, the, the, the three taboo topics were sex, politics, and religion. You didn't talk about those in social settings, but, but it seems like in recent years, sex and politics, the older cousins, have been invited to the adult table of the public square. It's, it's more appropriate to talk about those things, but religion has been sequestered to the kids' table, not allowed to participate in meaningful conversation that is of any significance. And the question I think we should ask ourselves is why? Why is religion, the little cousin, left at the kids' table, not allowed to speak in a place of public conversation of real relevance and meaning? And I think there's many reasons for this. There's a spectrum of them. On, on one side, you have this belief that religion is, is just merely a personal reality, and it has no bearing or relevance on the public square. It, it would be like bringing your childhood scrapbook to your company's annual shareholders meeting. It has no relevance. Like, that has no bearing on this conversation. But there's this other side of the spectrum that says that religion isn't just personal. Religion is poisonous, 
that religion causes great evil in our world, and that's why it should be kept in the private world. Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg is known for asserting a very bold claim in saying that religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. And so this is why many people in our day believe that religion should be kept in the private world. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been in a series exploring some cultural narratives that that many of us buy into, we believe wholeheartedly, and yet they are narratives, values, assumptions that may or may not necessarily be true, right, or good. And what we've been doing in this series is, is looking at these assumptions, looking at these narratives, and asking, do they really hold up? Are they consistent? And particularly, we've been looking at them in contrast, contrasting them with the narrative of, of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the foundation of this biblical worldview that, that gives us an understanding of who is God, who, is, who are we as humans, and, and how do we understand culture. And so this morning, as we look at this cultural narrative of should religion, religion should be kept private, we should ask ourselves, why have we come to this point? And, and throughout this series, we've had an opportunity for people to engage in conversation via text. So if there are questions that come up in, in, during the sermon, please text them to this number. Uh, we do kind of a live uh, Facebook Live Q&A that I'll be participating in tomorrow. So if you'd like to engage in that, we invite you to text in questions. So, so this morning, we want to look at this question of should religion be private? Now, while there's a lot to say and discuss about this, I, I want to begin by actually saying that there's, there's somewhat of an element of, of, of affirming this, this narrative, because at the heart of religion should be kept private is the belief that religion is a personal thing. And, and, and that's worth affirming. I think that's true, right, and good. Religion is personal. If religion is to be of any value or worth, it should be held personally. It should be believed personally. It should be enjoyed personally. It shouldn't just be something that we adhere to and buy into because of tradition's sake. It shouldn't be just this obligation because it lines up with my family tradition, my political persuasion, or my community's view of, the rea- of reality. But, but in some ways, there's also the sense in which the same person in our world who would say, you need to keep your religion private would also say you need to be true to yourself, another cultural narrative that we all buy into, that, that if you believe something, well, then believe it personally. Don't just believe it because someone told you to. So in some ways, religion being personal is a narrative in our culture that we should celebrate. Yes, absolutely, faith, religion should be a personal reality. And this is true of all religions, but, but particularly of Christianity, where we see in the early chapters of Genesis, we've been made in the image of God which has many implications, one of which being we were created for relationship, for connection to God and to others. We see that God created us not simply to be slaves or subjects or audience members for him, but he has created us that we might be known by him and that we might know him personally. God desires a faith that is uncoerced and unpretentious. He doesn't want a fabricated or obligatory faith that's just rooted in the fact that, well, that's what my parents believe, and that's what my grandpappy believed, and so therefore I believe it. And in fact, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3 for this very mindset. Jesus says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Now, what Jesus is saying is that we can't simply equate authentic faith with tradition. We can't simply say that I have real personal faith just because that's what my family has believed. It's what my religious affiliation kind of holds to. It's what our community generally adheres to. Religion must be personal. And I think in many ways our culture would agree with Jesus on this point. Don't just hold to your religion simply because it's part of your tradition. Hold to it because you personally believe it. But here's the thing, that, that yes, religion, while, while some people say it's private, it is a personal reality. But if we're honest and if we really evaluate this, we have to recognize that yes, while religion is personal, religion can't stay private. Regardless of your religion, regardless of what your belief about God, about reality is, your personal beliefs always have public effects. What you believe personally bleeds out into your values, your behaviors, and your attitudes. I mean, just for example, a friend of mine in college genuinely believed, personal belief, that to drive with a seatbelt, he drove more dangerously. And so because of that personal belief, he never wore his seatbelt. Yes, that's my friend. That's a friend of mine I had in college, you know? Like, this is a personal belief he had that to drive with a seatbelt, he drove more recklessly. To drive without it, he drove more cautiously. That personal belief has public effects that endangers him as well as others around him. Or, or think just uh, maybe on a smaller level, if I believed that shaking hands spread dangerous germs, I, I refrain from that very common social norm, that would be a very awkward thing to explain to every new person I meet, especially as a pastor, like, welcome to Christ's community. No, thank you. You know, like, that would be very <laughs> awkward. That personal belief has public effects. And, and it's true of, of small things like that as well as larger views that we have about reality. And even though some of our, 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 our underlying beliefs, even though they may not be considered religious, maybe in the, in the conventional way of thinking about religion, all of our beliefs are religious because I mean, we even use the word religious as an adjective like, oh man, he is, a, he is a religious Chiefs fan. We use that term to express sincere, passionate conviction and belief. In fact, one of the definitions of religion is a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. And so regardless of your religion, whatever it may be, whether you're religious or even if you're non-religious, we all have certain beliefs or, or what philosophers refer to as presuppositions, these, these axiomatic beliefs that are really rooted in a faith assumption to begin with. We all have certain religious beliefs that bleed out into public outcomes. So the, the ardent atheist from Argentina is just as religious as the monastic monk from Malaysia. E even though they may have two different worldviews, they hold to things religiously, and some of those beliefs aren't necessarily rooted in empirical data. They are held foundationally on a faith basis. Take, for instance, the words of uh, uh, Julian Barnes. He, he's a, an English novelist, a self-proclaimed atheist, and in his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, he, he says these words kind of speaking to his fellow atheists, and he says this, how can we atheists be sure that we, have, that we know enough to know? As 21st century neo-Darwinian materialists convinced that the meaning and mechanism of life have only been fully clear since the year 1859, which is in Darwin's Origin of the Species came out, we hold ourselves categorically wiser than those credulous knee-benders, referring to more spiritually religious people. We are no more evolved and certainly no more intelligent than them. 
what convinces us our knowledge is so final? And, and I think Barnes would agree that, that there are certain non-religious people in our world who have religious beliefs, who hold to things religiously and allow those beliefs to shape and form attitudes, values, and behaviors. Even the belief that religion should be kept private is a religious belief that isn't really rooted in empirical data. To say that religion should be kept private is a religious belief that strangles itself as it's uttering those words. To say that religion is private and must be kept private is itself a self-defeating religious belief. Religion can't stay private. Our personal beliefs shape our public behavior. But when it comes to the church, to, to the Christian faith in particular, I, I would agree that, that, that the Christian religion, the Christian faith, can't stay private, but I would, I would even push it a little further and say that the church of Jesus Christ must be public. That it's not just enough to say the church can't stay private, but that the church must be public. If the church of Jesus Christ is to be anything at all, it is to be a public presence and influence in the world. There's no escaping that when you understand the biblical narrative that God is laying out for us from Genesis to Revelation. The idea of an exclusively privatized faith that has no bearing or relevance on things like our relationships, on our work, on our finances, on our sexuality, on our free time, a religion that has no bearing on those things is completely antithetical to, to the Christian gospel, to the narrative and the story of the Christian faith. And again, this is where, where Genesis, I believe, is helpful for us in understanding the very public nature of the church of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God placing Adam in the garden, and the work that, is, that he is assigned to, there are two verbs used to describe it in verse 15. The, the, the scriptures say, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And those two words, work and keep, they're the exact same Hebrew words used later on in Exodus 25 to describe the work of the, of the priests who would, who would go into the tabernacle and intercede between God and the people of Israel. And, and, and what this means is that there, there is a similarity between what God is saying about the Garden of Eden and the work of Adam and the work of the priests in the tabernacle. The picture here, and many commentators agree, that what, what the author of Genesis is saying is that the Garden of Eden was not just a picture of God's perfect creation, although it was absolutely that. It is a picture of God's first temple, the first dwelling place of God's presence. And what we see in the Garden of Eden is that there was, there was no like religious embassy. There was no place where God dwelled only there. God, all of creation, is what housed God's presence. And Adam and Eve lived perfectly in harmony with God in his presence in all of creation. And when you go on to read the descriptions of, in Leviticus and in Exodus of the descriptions of the tabernacle, you see that the imagery that's used, the jewels and the gems used to, to decorate it, are similar to the picture of the Garden of Eden that we see in Genesis chapter 2. The point of this is not to show a really cool coincidence in Scripture, but to see that God is saying the Garden of Eden was the first temple where his presence dwelt. 
And the picture here is for us to understand that God's presence is not meant to be something that we experience and that we live into in isolated moments. That God's jurisdiction is not just over one hour on a Sunday morning, but that to live in God's presence is a reality that we experience in all of life, that he is to be at the center of our lives. In fact, when you look at the description of the tabernacle, it was the portable tent that Israel would establish in the land. They would move and establish the tent, the tent, uh, the tabernacle. It was first set up, and then everyone else's tent was set up around the tabernacle. And the picture of this was to show that, that God's presence was meant to be at the center of their reality, of their lives, of their existence, not as a hobby, not as a facet. There was no religious setting that was supposed to be special, that God's presence was meant to be at the center of our lives. The worship of God is not like a hobby where we say, well, I like volleyball and Russian literature and Yahweh. Like, it's not one more thing that we add to the list of things we're interested in. God is to be at the center of it all. That's the picture that we see throughout Scripture. And so, so when God establishes the first temple of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve live in it perfectly in his presence. No bifurcation, no walls, no divisions. God is at the center. But as we know, that temple was shattered. Because of sin, there's now separation between God and humanity. But God doesn't give up on his plan of establishing his presence in the world. He calls forth Abram in Genesis 12 to be the father of a mighty nation. Abram who becomes Abraham, God tells him, through you all the nations will be blessed. And what we know is that that story is a promise of the establishment of the people of Israel, that they were the presence of God in the world because from Israel would come the manifestation of God's presence in the Messiah, namely Jesus. And so as the biblical narrative unfolds, we go from the garden to Abraham, to the people of Israel, and then Jesus the Messiah comes. In John chapter 1, the description of Jesus is that he is the word of God made flesh, And in verse 14, John says that that he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, it literally means to tabernacle among us. That Jesus is not just the promised rescuer, but he is the manifestation of God's presence in our world. But it gets even better, because as Jesus shows that he has come to be the presence of God, he has also come to say, I have come to not simply be the presence of God, but to establish a people and to gather them to myself to be the representation of God's presence in this world, namely the church. This is the picture that we see as the Apostle Paul lays out for us what it means to be a part of the church. It's not a cool Christian club that we're a part of on Sundays and sometimes Wednesdays. It is the gathering of God's people who represent his presence and power in this world. As Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2, describing Jews and Gentiles coming together in Jesus, he says, Jews and Gentiles, they're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What all of this means is that the church of Jesus Christ is where God's presence dwells, not in the building but in his people, gathered together across all nations, tribes, tongues, and cultures. And we are called by him and formed together by his spirit to be equipped and sent out to be a part of his mission in this world. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in his final words to his disciples 
before he ascends to heaven, as he sends the disciples out to launch the greatest movement in human history, the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus says these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What Jesus is saying here is that the Christian faith is a public faith, and it cannot be anything less than that. If you identify with Jesus, you are a public witness of him. You're not his his PR agent. You're not his defense attorney. You are a witness declaring what you've seen and heard. And so what that means is that while our culture may tell a narrative that religion is private, and perhaps some of us buy into that narrative, Jesus makes it very clear for us that the church not only can, can the church not be private, the church must be public. So, so let me, I want to suggest two things for us to consider. And, and I, I want to speak to, to both non-religious people and, and religious people. And so, so if you're non-religious, if you'd say, I, I don't identify with the religion, not spiritual, I don't believe in God, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm so thankful that you, that you feel safe enough to be in this space. I hope our church is a place where you can wrestle and, and talk about the questions and doubts you may have. And so, again, we're glad you're here. But the thing I would want to say to you is this, is recognize the religious nature of your beliefs. Recognize, be willing to recognize the religious nature of your beliefs. What are the unexamined assumptions, the the underlying narratives that you buy into and believe that form and shape your behaviors? Perhaps things that you believe on faith, a presupposition that's not rooted in empirical data, it's just something you hold to. What are those religious beliefs, or maybe a better way of thinking about it is, is look at your values and behaviors and ask yourself, where did they come from? What foundation, what is the reason for you valuing this over this? What has led you to act in this way as opposed to this way? Because here's the thing, my, my guess, for those of you who would say I'm, I'm not religious or for those of you who have friends or family members who are not religious, my guess is the majority of you wouldn't necessarily be all the way over on the side of saying there's no God, everything that exists is only the material world. That may be some of you for sure, but my guess is that for those of us who would identify as non-religious, my my guess is that you're caught somewhere in between the seemingly cold disenchantment of atheism and and the seemingly untenable enchantment of theism. That that you're kind of stuck here and and you you look forward at this idea of faith and you say, man, there's a gap there. I can't step forward in faith. I'm not there yet. That seems too much to do. And while there is a gap ahead of you, there is for sure a gap behind you. There's for sure a gap back to unbelief, to a position of saying there is only the material world and matter is the only thing that matters. That the only thing that can be verified as true is something that's verified empirically, which ironically can't be verified empirically. But the point is, is that we have to see there's a gap in front of us, but there's also a gap behind us, a gap to belief and a gap to disbelief. And the question that I would encourage you to ask is which path, which direction are you more comfortable moving towards? You may find that you're more religious than you think you are. So that's non-religious people, religious people. I got something for you too. So uh, here's what I want us to, to consider. Recognize the public nature of your beliefs. Recognize the public nature of your beliefs. And what I mean by that is that a public faith that is not personal is inconsistent and incomplete. A personal faith or a public faith that is not personal is inconsistent and incomplete, but a personal faith that is not public 
is inauthentic and, and ultimately irrelevant. I, I think in some ways our culture's uh, high value of the narrative of, of be true to yourself, which is a narrative we've already kind of looked at and explored, is that if being true to yourself, if that's a high value, in some ways that serves to the advantage of the Christian. Like if you believe this personally, well, be true to yourself. Be consistent with what you believe. And, and if that means being public in certain ways, like why are you holding that back? If, if you believe that Jesus is a central part of your life, and has influenced you and changed you and drastically altered your life, why isn't he a part of our natural conversation? Why do we tend to be more private if our faith is public by nature? I think there's a sense in which a privatized Christian faith is almost seen as objectionable in our culture because we're showing that we really don't believe it and that it's not really authentic. We're not being true to ourselves and we're holding it back. And in fact, a few years ago, there was an article in The Atlantic about um, atheists in college. And there was an interview with a student, uh, and he was asked about his opinions of his very public and vocal Christian classmates. And, and, and this is what the student said. He said, any Christian who doesn't try to convert me is not a good person. Any, any Christian who doesn't try to convert me is not a good person. What he's saying here is like, look, if you believe, if you believe that the world is broken because of sin and that Jesus the Messiah is the only hope for restoration and hope and forgiveness, why on earth are you staying silent about it when we're hanging out together? And so there's a sense in which our culture values being authentic to what we believe. Are we recognizing the public nature of our faith? If our faith in a risen Messiah who died in our place that we might be brought into his kingdom and join him in his mission of restoring this world, if, if that does not produce a public outcome, if it doesn't lead us to being vocal in some way in conversation, then perhaps we should ask ourselves if it's Jesus we're following. We should seriously consider that question. Now, this doesn't mean we need to be awkward and weird about our faith and what we believe, but neither does it mean we need to be contentious and confrontational. We need to see that the public nature of our faith simply means that if you follow Jesus, if you have been changed and transformed by his grace, then why wouldn't you bear witness to him? Why wouldn't you talk about him? Why wouldn't he come up in conversation with those that you have relationship with? And sometimes I think it's because we, we tend to think that, that our posture as followers of Jesus is more like being a defense attorney, that we have to, we have to prove and we have to defend Jesus, and he's over here kind of like in, in the stands, like, gosh, I don't know if he's going to do this right. We aren't his defense attorneys. We are witnesses on the stand simply declaring what we've seen and heard. We are not witnessing. We are not called to be witnessing like that, but we are called to be witnesses who declare what we have seen and heard. We are not called to sell Jesus. We are simply called to tell about Jesus. Christianity, it's so interesting. Christianity is the only religion that, that if, if you wanted to sum it up, if you had to sum up your entire faith, if someone said, explain to me your faith, you could just say, go see Jesus. And, and that's it. And, and obviously there's more to talk about and converse about, but we have to see that the public nature of our faith should lead us to be people who don't don't have this posture of arrogance and saying, I'm right, you're wrong, you need the truth, now believe it. But we have a posture of saying, I have met the most amazing person in the world, and you have to meet him too. We, we are fellow hospital patients who have been in the hospital a little bit longer, and we're pointing out to new patients where to find medicine, and who the right surgeon is, and what to eat and what not to eat in a hospital. That's kind of the picture of a follower of Jesus. 
It's not someone who has left the hospital and comes back. We are fellow patients pointing to other patients where to find medicine. You see, it's not the gospel of Jesus that compels us to be cocky or arrogant or divisive or contentious. The gospel of Jesus does not put us in a posture, in a place where we say, I have the truth, you don't believe it. But rather, the gospel gives us this humble confidence and this ability to say, I have, I have met and experienced and encountered the most amazing person, and I want you to meet him too. Because when we understand that Jesus came not to abuse his power by asserting himself over his subjects, but instead chose to use his power by substituting himself for his enemies, doesn't that change our posture as we are conversing with people about him? I mean, don't you see how, how it does not match up when we're telling people about the story of one who died for his enemies to come into that conversation real belligerently and, like, and really aggressive and contentious? It doesn't match up. The gospel compels us to be people of humility who recognize that we are broken sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. And we are simply telling people and pointing people to where they can find help and healing and hope. In the end, none of our religious beliefs can remain private. But for the church of Jesus Christ, we must be public. There, there, there's no escaping that. So the question is, what does that look like? Have we come to encounter Jesus in a way that says, I've met the most amazing person in the world, you have to meet him too? Does the gospel compel us to have a humble confidence? Let us be a people who go out into this world, not with an arrogance of being right and having all the answers, but rather as a people who are humbly joyful to declare who Jesus is and what he has done and to tell and not sell the goodness of who Jesus is. Come see Jesus. And so my question for you is, will you be willing to recognize the religious nature of your beliefs? But for those who identify with Jesus, will you be willing to recognize the public nature of your beliefs? And will you be willing to explore who Jesus is? Because we never move past that as those who follow Christ. Come see Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer asking that you would do a work in our lives. Lord, would you, for those of us, Lord, who, who are guilty of an arrogant, boastful posture when it comes to representing you in this world, Lord, would you convict us? Would you show us that the gospel does, does not compel us to act in that way, Lord? Would we see our Savior substituting himself for us, his enemies? And may that change the way in which we engage this world, engage our friends and coworkers and classmates. But Lord, for those of us who... We just aren't sure where we stand or what we believe. Or for those who, who perhaps would say that I, I don't identify with religion or faith or God, Lord, would you, would you show them, would you show us that perhaps we are more religious than we realize? Would you show us the gap ahead of us and the gap behind us? Would your spirit lead us to explore and encounter Jesus, the one who came to substitute himself for us? Lord, would you do this for our good and for your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me, let me end our time with these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.